Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome one of Europe's true OG LPs, Chris Wade, co-founding partner of Isomer Capital. With an extensive career as a founder, startup mentor, and LP with more than 50 venture fund investments under his belt. Chris is the guy you should want to know. At Isomer, Chris co-leads their fund investments and leads their co-investment program and has a weekly section in the EUVC newsletter where he shares his perspectives and learnings from the week gone by. Tune in for the first of a two-part episode where we, in this installment, explore Chris's path into venture, what guides him as an LP, and subsequently reflect on the year that has gone by. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving us a review, and following the European VC on LinkedIn. Chris, welcome to the show. It is so great having you back on EUVC and this time for quite a special one because we're going to, first of all, try and uncover who is Chris Wade and secondly, wrap up the year in European venture. Well, it's great to be here, Andreas. I love what you do. EUVC has become a permanent fixture in Isomer's lives and I think many others too. And that's because you're bringing a fresh, new, exciting outlook and we love it. Thanks, Chris. I will uh, make sure to uh, send you that present now for saying that. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. So, Chris, we've had you on the show twice before. First time as part of one of our LP roundtables with David Dana and Ertan Jan. And the second mm. time to discuss how to navigate the current market turmoil that was <laughs> happening throughout 22 and bound to continue in 23. But in none of those episodes have we really given you a chance to get the listeners to really understand who you are. And I've been feeling that that's been, you know, almost uh, an offense. <laughs> and that is for three reasons. First of all, I have come to find you extremely exceptional guy. And I've come to love you quite a bit. And that's for many things, but especially for your very special mix of candid thoughtfulness and an almost fatherly empathy. And I think that our listeners, and I hope our listeners will understand why I say that when we get to the end of this episode. But secondly, it's also because you're, of course, <coughs> one of the founders of Isomer Capital. And Isomer has had a significant impact on the European venture scene. And you being also an accomplished founder, you're bringing something different to the world of LP investing that I think that we benefit hugely from in Europe. I'm just super happy that you've also become, you know, and this is the third point, a dedicated installment or you have a dedicated installment in our newsletter that I, I've dubbed aptly the late night LP conversation with Chris Wade because it's the part where we really wrap up the week and dive into the thinking that you've had throughout the week. And, and that's exactly why I'm looking forward to have this conversation with you because I know so much is going on inside your brain and you have a bit of a different, let's call it experience base than most to think about these topics in. So Chris, so thankful to have you with us here. The fascinating thing about doing this weekly little readout is it forces me to think about it all week. And we're very transactional in one sense in what we do at Isomer. You know, we look at investment propositions, either from a fund and a company. We make a decision and we do it. Time for thoughtfulness is low. And therefore, to be forced to say, well, I need to be thoughtful about what's going on this week or what I'm thinking about that because I've got something I've got to write by a Friday is actually a rather wonderful thing. So I hate it, but I love it. <laughs> and with all that said, 
And I'm sure that some people have been also reading the newsletter and thinking, hmm, this Chris Wade guy, who is he? Because I know Isomer Kavlin, I've also seen Chris at this conference or that conference, and maybe I've even pitched to him or, or tried to send him at least my pitch deck. So for that reason, I just really want us to now dive deep into your story and figure out not the short story behind Chris Wade, but the long version. So really don't hold anything back. And Chris, let's then start this now with a proverbial question. How did you get into venture? Well, I started my career as a technologist in telecommunications. I had a scholarship to go to university. I'm profoundly dyslexic, which is another amusing thing that I have to write something each week, which is probably why you get it in bullet form. I always say that <laughs> when I look at it, I'm like, fuck, this guy has such a crinkled mind. <laughs> so Yeah, and, and actually, that's, so that's why I did sciences at university and, and in my education. And so I ended up in technology, but a very different technology, a technology that was is fundamental to everything we do today. And I was one of many hundreds of thousands that were working on it. And this essentially was the digitization of the network. I started working for a UK company, emigrated to New Zealand, realized how awful UK companies were at exporting, discovered a North American company called Northern Telecom, who were brilliant at it. And that started a 14-year career of doing pretty much everything that you might do in a technology company in the 80s, starting doing sort of product management, doing engineering management, and then becoming into sales and marketing, and then general management. The beauty of working for a North American company, they teach you one thing that is so valuable in startup world. Every hour counts. 24 hours is a long time. In that 24 hours, a competitor may have outbeaten you. A piece of technology may have failed. Something may have happened. And this is all driven by the North American quarterly process, which we're all very familiar with now globally. But if you go back then, very few companies in Europe were reporting quarterly. So this idea of a metronome of pace and dynamic and drive was really important. I left that company to join a much smaller technology company, very similar space, based in Dallas, Texas. So a lot of American early influence in my career. And this company, I was running the international division, and this company got acquired by Arcatel, the big te uh, French telecoms and general industrial company, literally with me only being there six months. CEO said, Chris, I would like you to be my insider on this deal. I'd like you to have sort of just check in and how it's going. And then we went through this acquisition. It was about a $4 billion acquisition. It's the first time that I understood that equity had some value. Because prior to that point, equity was options which, you know, you might get, you know, enough to have a nice holiday or something like that or contribute down the mortgage or something like that. It was a little bonus type thing. Here for the first time was a more significant outcome that I thought actually equity is important part of one's motivation here. And actually, that led me down the path of starting a company in Cambridge, which was in the space of figuring out how do you enable mobile phones to locate themselves? <laughs> Now, I had had this big corporate career. That was all about politics. That was all about sort of revenue, maybe about profitability, but never about cash. <laughs> And here we are in a startup, and there's a man who many, many people will know who was an associate at 3i, who was called Simon Cook. And Simon Cook said, Chris, this is what you've got to do. You've got to understand you've got this 
very valuable asset that's called cash, and you have to do something with it before you can have some more cash. And this sounds an extremely simple concept to explain, and everybody might understand that. But actually, turning that into actionable things that can happen when you're dealing with technology that goes into mobile phones that had no app stores, technology that needed to go into servers when there were <coughs> there was no cloud computing at all back in those days was extremely challenging. And simply, I would say that I learned probably more in the first couple of years of running the startup. The company was called Cambridge Positioning Systems than I had in the previous 14 years because everything every day was a new challenge. Pitching to investors was a new challenge. Building a technology team, building a team, by the way, where by definition, everybody was considerably smarter than I. Now, that may not be difficult, but actually they were scientists, they were physicists, they were mathematicians, because we were dealing with an algorithmic point. And this became a, a really big challenge. I absolutely loved it. And there were highs when it was totally amazing. And there were moments where I thought, what the hell am I doing, sort of working sort of so damn hard, and everything's going wrong. <laughs> and this is the roller coaster ride and there was a one guy who sat on the board who was the chairman. His name was John Scarisbrick. He was an XTI executive. And he taught me one extremely valuable lesson that I still use today. And that is when you meet an entrepreneur and when he used to meet me, he would just say, how are you? <laughs> and then say nothing. That Japanese silence technique. You have to say something. And I use that a lot. Interestingly, I can almost gauge the intensity of the entrepreneur. I can gauge the intensity of the relationship by how long the answer might be. Now, it might go on for half an hour. The thing I hate is, and gives you a clue of where you are in, in a relationship, if the response is, I'm fine, how are you? Which is a very closed sort of response. So we built this technology company. It was very successful. Up until 2001, we raised lots of money. We raised money from Intel Capital. For example, in 2000, we were going to be acquired by Intel Capital. So this was all very, very exciting. 2001 happened, and the world collapsed. And we spent the following two years deconstructing pretty much everything we spent the last four years building because there were no customers during this period. All the experimental budgets of technology and mobile phones and mobile anything had stopped. And this was a very, very painful period. It is a period that actually I have been reliving hugely in 2022, because I want to share that pain as a learning experience to entrepreneurs that we meet and fund managers that we meet. Some of them have had similar experiences, so there's no need to do it. But others, actually, they need to have that kind of input. And I talk about one thing. And that is, when you're running a company, you want to be in control. And you are not in control if you're running out of capital. And the only solution is for new capital to come in because that is outside of your control. So anything you can do to prevent that happening or minimize that happening or in some way minimize that losing control perspective. And when I say losing control, I mean simply people may not give you money and you've lost your company. People may give you money at such horrible terms that you really sort of wish, why am I still doing this? I now own so little equity of the thing. 
but there is this incredibly powerful magnetic force as a founder that says, this is my baby. Very rarely do you give up on your children. You may want to occasionally, but you don't give up on your children ever. And being a founder of a company is very similar. This is something you've created. This is something you've started. This is something I'm going to see through. And on many occasions, that was the motivation beyond any sort of personal sort of remuneration or, or um, big stuff. We pivoted the company very significantly from a licensing business to a technology sort of IP business and successfully sold it in 2007. I would do that all again. Extremely painful. I would do it all again because I learned so much. And admittedly, some of that learning was deeply painful. And on the point of deeply painful, and I've been thinking about this a bit because we hear so much about founder stress levels during 2022 and how hard it is and, and everything. And obviously, it's, it is a tougher position to be in typically to be the leader of a company that then have to fire or lay off much of the workforce than it is to be in the board and then tell the person that that needs to be done or or help the person get to that point but nonetheless vcs are finding themselves of course in those conversations where they are more on the advisory side so they're not the ones pulling the trigger on people they know but they are in that all day long it's not just one company it's a bunch of companies and at the same time we have many vcs that are new to the game, so they haven't been through this before. They've only seen the good times and all that. And you see so much content being produced about how to emphasize, show empathy towards uh, founders and, and how to help founders think through things. But there is also a stress level on the VCs that I'd love to hear from you as an LP. How have you worked with your TPs around this? Is there something to be done there? Or would you say that when you get to this level where you can be a VC, then you need to know that kind of thing and, and you don't need a, a coach to help you through the tough times. I think everybody needs a coach, formally or informally. And what could that really mean? It means I want to have an off-the-record conversation. I want to tell you how awful my portfolio is. I've got one company that might pull me through and that founder isn't speaking to me right now. Yeah. You know, I'm not suggesting for a minute that's that's actually reality, but we do have conversations that are like that. I don't know whether you'd call them coaching sessions. You know, I do this little trick sometimes. I certainly do it with entrepreneurs. I sometimes do it with VCs where we're sitting on a table and we're on one side and the VC or the entrepreneurs on the other side of the table and we're having a tough conversation. Mm -hmm. And I will, when I'm seeing that I'm sensing stress levels going up and I'm feeling it, I will get up. It's easy to do it if I'm on my own, to be honest, and I will come and sit next to them. What I'm signifying here is I'm not against you. I'm with you. Let's figure this out together. And that sometimes can be a metaphorical sort of way of thinking about things that says, look, actually, we're not against each other. We're actually just trying to work out a really tough situation. I have spent a great deal of time explaining to our LPs how difficult the business we're in. An LP that's new to venture capital may have just read all the headlines of, of all, I should say, historic headlines of all the success and all the brilliance and say, this is an easy business, but actually it's not. And anyone listening to this who's involved knows 
exactly what I'm saying. This is an extremely tough business, extremely tough to build companies. I mean, really tough, extremely hard to pick the great winners, extremely hard to really work with them in a cooperative way. And I suppose the only real other thing I would say, other than this sort of, you know, making it physically clear that we are together on this. We will figure this out together. You know, this is not a competitive battle. And that is never to tell. You must do this. I'm sure someone is listening to this who will say, well, you did do that on that. And I apologize. What I try to do is to say, you know, I suppose the question is, how do we deal with this? Or how should we think about this? Because what you're always wanting to do is for the solution to come from the entrepreneur or the VC. Now, often in venture capital, there are tough choices to be made. An obvious example might be a company you really, really like in the portfolio that's doing really well, but has run out of cash. And you've got to put more money into this company and you've got to attract more capital from externally to come in. And you know that that has to happen. You do not, as a VC who's already got capital in this company, want the valuation to be very low because, of course, then you're writing your previous investments down. On the other hand, you need to be successful. Now, that is a really hard dynamic to have. You're working night and day to try and put more money into this company. And if successful, the likelihood is you're going to have to write down all your previous investments in this. So this is a dynamic of, of now. It's extremely tough. I suppose there is a philosophy that says that we recognize that we're in venture capital. And what does venture mean? It means take a chance. <laughs> With the obvious implication that some things are going to fail. And, you know, I would say that that is an inevitability that we have to be comfortable with as LPs. And if we're not, we shouldn't be LPs. And now you said that we as LPs. So how do you think about it on the, um, I, I keep being vexed by the fact that we have startups that are on a uh, exponential curve I mean, in terms of performance. And we also almost have VCs being like that. <laughs> and the whole point of building a portfolio is that that should not happen. <laughs> But Nonetheless, that's how our industry performs. And as an LP, how do you think about that? How do you, and I remember being in a call with Joe where Joe says, well, I always want to model my portfolio so I don't need the outlier for me to still hit the performance that I promised to my LPs. But I'd love to hear, you know, if you could dive a bit into that because you just said, as an LP, I need to also be okay with write-offs. I need to know that being inventor is also a bet. How do you think about that on the fund investment side, not the direct startup investment side, but Do you look at a fund and then say, okay, I'll, I'll do a wild bet here. It'll either be a 10x or it'll probably <laughs> fail miserably. Well, clearly we don't make any investments in funds that we think are going to fail. But what we are doing is, you know, if we think about the 61 or two VCs that we've invested in since inception of ISOM in 2015, what would be the characteristics of that portfolio Well, there will be some fund three, some fours that have had strong track records, very solid GPs. You would imagine that it's highly likely that they will continue to deliver their results. They might oscillate a bit with market 
perturbations, but you know you're going to get a reasonable sort of outcome. And then you've got the first-time managers who you say, look, their angel book looks great. They have a very strong thesis. They have a background in the thesis that they want to invest in. And we hope that this will work out. You know, there's an interesting IRR dynamic here. But actually, if we cared only about IRR, we would always invest sort of at the last minute of a fund. And of course, by definition, that means that they've already built some of the portfolio, even if it's a first-time fund. The problem with that is, is that sometimes you need firms like Isomer to back you early to get the fund started. So there is that sort of dynamic. And that is a very carefully calculated bet that says these guys are likely to catch the right number of successes to get the kind of return that you have. And then there's the final classification of VC that have never done it before, have no real track record, have you know no real VC experience, and you work extremely closely with them. We're very lucky to have many of those in the Isomer portfolio, and they become projects. They are not LP investment. They're projects. They're things we work closely together, typically weekly calls, typically trying to be helpful, trying to understand how to help fundraise, how to build the business, how to understand portfolio construction, etc. The extraordinary thing is that some of those are our biggest performers by a long way. So in a way, as a VC has a portfolio of companies, wild bets, fairly solid sort of bets that you think are going to have an outcome. We're, I wouldn't say we've made wild bets, but you know we have this sort of spectrum of outcomes that you might imagine across European venture that we're trying to capture. And that has worked pretty well so far. And that also, of course, all of this ties into you know basic portfolio dynamics in the LP investing realm that I think that many VCs would be well off actually educating themselves a bit on to understand why is it that if I'm raising a first-time fund and I haven't done too much, it might be good to stay on the small side because there is an LP on the other side that needs to you know, be able to see a big return for the risk. So if I show up with a 50 million euro fund for two guys, then maybe <laughs> maybe that, that might be a bit over the top. If I have a proven track record and, I'm, and the LP will be very comfortable that I will give 3x or something in that neighborhood, you know, it's not that bad that it's only a likely 3x. But if you show up with a, you know, Wild bet that might give you three X. That you know, then it's a bit tougher to argue. Yeah. No, th there's no question. I mean, our best performers are very small funds. Yeah, because it's easier to do. You know, it's easier to turn sort of ten million into thirty million or forty million yeah. than it is to turn a hundred in. And they, you know, I have always said venture capital is like the road of, to enlightenment of a Buddhist monk. In other words, it's you don't press a button and you suddenly have got you know, 50 years of venture capital experience. You get 50 years of venture capital experience for doing it for 50 years and going through different sort of cycles. So, so the exciting thing about European venture or venture in general is that probably in 2022, VCs learnt more, especially the ones that are, you know, just starting, will have learned more about their businesses than they would have done in the previous two years because it suddenly got tough. <laughs> All the assumptions that they made, oh, yes, we'll raise a big round for this at an ever-increasing valuation will happen. And that, I think, is really, really interesting. This is maturing venture capital. So if you had an index of the maturity of European venture capital, it probably went up 
a lot in 2022, and I think that will continue in 23. So Chris, we, as always in our conversations, veered off the plant path, but I will bring us back with the question, instead of asking you to really, you know, continue your story all the way into Isomer, I would say, jump now to the question, why was Isomer the right thing for you to found and dedicate the rest of your life to at the point where you uh, did that after being an exited entrepreneur and all that, which you just, you know, gave us the background of? I have always been passionate about Europe, which might tell you something about how I voted on Brexit. <laughs> but I've been passionate about the fact that European venture should and will be and has become a really important geography in the world of venture capital. If you think about core ingredients, top universities producing science, talk about the number of software engineers, just talk about the mental agility. Talk about the fact that no one country in Europe is big enough to support a global company. So by definition, you're international from day one, very different from the US. All those things must imply that European venture is going to become a really important asset class. So I believe that. So when I met this man, Joe Shorge, who said, well, I have an idea how to capture that. And we talked an enormous amount about how to do that and would that be possible and what was required and all that stuff. And he led that all those conversations because he had the experience of building funds and creating funds from his Cambridge and Pomona days. And that was just a very, very exciting thing. I think it's true to say that I was captivated significantly by Joe. So Joe Shorge founder of Isomer Capital, is a rather unique person. This is an analytical man. This is a person who is deeply analytical and will think about things in many different directions and analyze them and spreadsheet them and all this stuff before coming to a decision. In other words, the complete opposite of the entrepreneur, Chris Wade, who'd built companies by the seat of his pants and, and done all those things here. You would think this would be a natural clash. The interesting point is that I felt I could learn from him to become more disciplined, more analytical in my thinking, and he could learn from me, which could be loosely described, I think we should just do this and see what happens. That is the essence of an entrepreneurial idea. In other words, you don't have a proof point that says, if I do this, it'll be successful. You have a bunch of potential proof points to say it might be successful, and then just go do it. I saw that marriage and that combination. It has worked out infinitely better than I ever, ever imagined. And I think Joe would say the same. Because that combination has built Isomer along with some wonderful people that have joined us on the ride to build something that I think is important in European venture and actually will continue to be and our plans are to continue to build it very significantly. But it just, you know, in the end, it was a dream and a person I could work with and a person that could work with me. It is the essence. And I can tell you, I was in my late 50s when we started this. And I thought, if we pull this off, this will just be the most exciting next stage of my career that could be ever possible. And exciting means fulfilling. Yes, it's a sort of continuous conveyor belt of activity and work and an enormous amount of just energy required to bring everything along and to make things happen and, and to hire people and do all those things. Nothing particularly new there. But it also was very fulfilling when you 
get a fund off the ground from scratch when you're able to get into a really successful VC fund that's never taken institutional capital, when you help people start their funds. These are little mini breakthroughs that are entrepreneurial milestones that you're really proud of, and no amount of money can replace that. So venture capital, yes, is a potential road to riches, a very slow road to riches, I hasten to add. So fundamentally, you're in it because actually you love those little micro entrepreneurial moments where you say, hey, without us, this wouldn't have happened. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I always really enjoy seeing you and Joe together at the same time and then think about, hmm, it's interesting to see how much your combination looks like David's and mine <laughs> because David is exactly like Joe, as you say, and I, I can see that. And that's always been my uh, um, self-criticism of myself. That, mm, I might be a bit too, let's call it entrepreneurial, you know, as you say, that that's, well, that's a beautiful word for it. But some would yeah. say, well, it's, it's just fucking do it <laughs> mode. I come back to that thing I learned many, many years ago working for a North American company, and that is 24 hours is a long time. Yeah. I am passionate about sort of responding, passionate about just action and making things happen and making decisions You know, because that is the driver of all this, all this stuff, not necessarily from a competitive perspective, although that is a dynamic, but just because you want to do a good job, right? You just want to, you know, if someone says, hey, Chris, what about this? You want, you don't want to wait two weeks for the answer. You want the answer in the next 24 hours, yeah. if less. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Okay, so Chris, now I'll ask you about some core principles that you have as an LP that guide your thinking and acting as an LP. I'd love our audience to go away from this interview with three of those, uh, if I can push you to give me three. But let's take them piecemeal. So give me, if you should say, one core principle that guides you as an LP, what would that be? It's to behave responsibly, to take a proposition, understand it, and then get back to that person that sent us that fun presentation with a response. Now, I will be the first to say that we do not achieve this 100%. You know, the volume is huge, and we get busy on things and we miss them. But the core objective is that anybody from anywhere should send us an email with a fund proposition, and we should respond and saying, in scope, out of scope. In scope, let's have a call. Let's have that call. Let us say, yeah, actually, we quite like this. We'd like to put it in our pipeline. No, actually, for these reasons, we don't like it. And then we spend half an hour explaining it's, it's, it's us, not you, because that's really important. You know, we have sort of, you know, guidelines about sort of fund size. We have some guidelines about sort of geographies. We have some guidelines on sectors. We have some guidelines on what we think a sort of diverse team should look like that we want to invest in. And many times those are out of scope. To have the courage to say, I'm sorry, you're not in scope, is tough. It's not easy to do this, but we must do it. How do you deal with um, you're in scope, but I will not do it anyway? Because sometimes, and, and you'll know, that's a problem that's bigger for me and David than you, because we are not tied in by very strict rules from LPs that we have agreed with that this is what we're going to do and execute on. So in that sense... It is at our discretion what the fuck we want to do. <laughs> We're trying to build a portfolio with every successive ISOMA fund that represents European venture. Geographically, from a technology point of view, 
from a stage point of view within the scope of early stage. So really early, you know, sort of, you know, early and a little bit sort of early and late, if those are terms, because I kind of given up using A's and B's and seed and all that stuff. It means so many different things, different people. And that's what we're going to do. So the fact is, if we have got three UK consumer or AI or deep technology focused funds, we probably do not need a fourth. And this is the hardest thing to explain to VCs because they say, well, but, but we're the best. <laughs> and we say, well, yes, but we're building a portfolio. And, you know, VCs understand that when they're building a company portfolio, they don't have too many of the same company by definition. And this is a really tough thing to do. The only thing I would say that we're, you know, remember, we're on this same road to enlightenment ourselves is that we now think about, as we do our successive funds, we think about each fund when we're thinking about doing a re-up. They're not automatic. We really do a deep dive. We think about it. We understand it. Did they do what they would say they were going to do? How was the partnership? Do they still represent the best of class in that geography, in that type of technology, in that stage? And, you know, if not then that slot becomes sort of open. And we spend a great deal of time thinking about that, working on that. We're also ever-present of new technology frontiers. So within the time of Isomer, we've had these, I would, the frontier of blockchain in general. So we created a fund on blockchain. We are now looking at climate change as the next sort of frontier, and there will be ever more frontiers. And that's a really important point for an early stage VC to back new ideas in an appropriate proportion in, in the total portfolio. Just to touch on that, because I think that you said something important when we had you on our Lowdown podcast, where you said, well, for us to be able to back an impact fund, there needs to be more than one impact fund, because otherwise we can't say that it's the best one. It's just the only one. <laughs> And I think that there is a good point there, because it speaks a bit to the maturity of a vertical And I'd love to dive a bit deeper on how you think about that as an LP, but also what you would say to the ones that are operating as VCs on a frontier, where many LPs will say, well, I haven't looked at a fund in this space before. Yeah, so we did our first sector fund in 2020. So in other words, sort of five years into Isomer, and the sector was fintech. Because we could do a market map of about sort of 25, 30 funds that were in scope and good, and then do our triage down to one, which which we did. And we do similar things in different sort of sectors. Now, there is no rule or, or real sort of logic that says the sector has to have X number of funds. My point on the, the Lowdown podcast was it can't be one because you just need to have a little bit more. And you then would argue if it's only one, you'd argue, well, is it really a sector as well? So, But we have gone very early in blockchain. You know, We will go very early in other areas as well as we see unique opportunities and you know you talked about the defining aspects of isomer you know we talk about this responsibility but we also talk about being entrepreneurial and this is the surprise this is the thing that delights me every time i have a deep sort of historic thought about isomer holy shit we did that deal i mean no sane person would do that deal um <laughs> perhaps what i really mean is no institutional LP that would be prepared to spend a hundred hours looking at this and more and more and would really get comfortable with it because they do their normal 
cursory analysis of it and say, that's not for us. And so we, we do do these entrepreneurial things from time to time. As I said earlier, balanced with the much more appropriate sort of, you know, fund three, fund, you know, we're, we're just doing fund six in seed camp, for example. You know, so these are balanced sort of decisions. I will go directly into a second core principle for you if you were to give me that and I'm mindful that we have four minutes left but let's do it nonetheless and then end the episode on that yeah so it's about how we can help some of the funds that have been around for a long long time in in Europe are probably very good investments but Isomer has little or nothing to offer nor would they want it and nor would they really appreciate it so we're looking for this balance between maturity And there's still something meaningful for us to contribute to that sort of fund. And we really care about that because it creates the relationship. It creates the dynamic conversation that we would want to have on a really regular basis. And whether that's finding the next GP, whether it's thinking about how do they move to a different type of LP for their next fund, you know, all these kind of topics. If we can't see that that's a valuable conversation. And we're very comfortable if it's not, but it has to be a partnership conversation. And that partnership needs to be two ways. For example, we say, give us lots of information about your companies and we'll make a new co-investment decision in a week. And we have tried very carefully and diligently to do that. Because again, it comes back to this sort of co-investment thing where you send it to an LP and you don't hear anything from a month. And, and you don't know where, where you are. That is a negative force that we try to avoid. But it is this idea that partnership is at the center of everything ISOMA does, both with our LPs, with our GPs. But it has to be a partnership that people want. And we're very mindful that on the wrong side of signing a subscription agreement, people will say yes to everything. But, you know, do, you know is it really what they want? And we worry about that a lot. Do they really need us? Do they really want us? Or not. That's actually, that's one thing that David and I have learned from you guys is the distinguishing between demonstrated ability to partner or, or actually show demonstrated interest in partnering or if it's just communicated. <laughs> and I think that that's a huge uh, No, I, I think that's right. So, so you know, I, I spent the last couple of days where the email flow has been going down a bit, just going through lots and lots of things that we talked about with funds and just pinging them a WhatsApp or an email saying, hey, did anything ever happen? I'm just thinking if we had enough time and enough energy, one would want to do that very regularly with everybody. Yeah. I'm just communicating one thing. I'm thinking about you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, Chris. Chris, thanks so much for joining for this very, very deep dive on your story and how you think about venture in general. I think it is a huge addition to our ecosystem that we on this podcast are bringing LPs on so that all the VCs listening in can really understand who the guys behind the money really is. So I think it's amazing that you showed up for this recording and was as transparent and blunt as always. I hope our audience found out a bit why I have come to love you and why I say that you come with candid thoughtfulness at the same time as also bringing that fatherly empathy. So Chris, thanks a million for joining. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of The European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc.